As you're taking your seats, you can open your Bible to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 8. And if you don't have a copy of God's Word, we want to get one into your hands. So there will be some ushers walking up the aisle, and you can just slip your hand up in the air, and we will get one to you. And if you don't own a Bible, please keep this and consider it a gift from us. We would have no greater joy than to put a copy of God's Word into your hands, even to take home. Just by way of introduction, if I haven't met you before, my name is John and I serve here as one of the the elders and it's a privilege of mine to be standing in front of you today opening God's word this afternoon. We certainly miss Pastor Ian when he's not around and I was just thinking of how faithfully he stands up here on Sundays 40 to 45 times every single year and then with all the other responsibilities he has in the home and in other places, it's such a gift from the Lord to this church and even to the global church. And um, we just want to continue to pray for him and his family. And I'm just personally grateful for him and even his guidance in helping me think through this passage that we're going to be going through. Um, And I, I just pray that it's going to be encouragement to you as it was to my own heart as I prepared for it. Well, I'm sure most of you haven't noticed this, but there's um, a little scar that's running down the middle of my forehead, and every so often my kids will ask me to tell the story again and again. They seem to find a lot of joy in my pain. (laughs) And I'll spare you most of the details, mainly because I don't want to expose the, the culprit in all of this, but I was about two or three years old and playfully just being pushed around in a stroller by a number of people. And I'm sure you can imagine what happens. Someone accidentally, as far as I was told, they they pushed a little bit stronger with one hand than the other and the stroller took a turn and I face planted in the corner of a brick wall. And um, as you can imagine, it wasn't a pleasant sight. But I was also told that the one thing that I really wanted, as any child would, was my mom. She's running down, obviously, that hallway towards me with blood streaming down my face. And at this point, I don't know who's panicking more. But if I was in any type of pain, I knew right away that I wanted her. It was a place of comfort, a place where I had been shown great compassion. And I also knew that I expected to find healing there. And certainly God had that in mind when he created that relationship. There's there's a unique gentleness, as Paul says in in 1 Thessalonians, of a nursing mother as as she takes care of her own children. There's really nothing like it. And children sense that. They, They instinctively know who to go to in time of need, always remembering that provision is going to be made. We've experienced it. You've either have given it or you've been the recipient of it. And I wonder if we could take a lesson from children and apply it to our relationship with the Lord. That we, when we are in a time of need in our lives, we naturally go to the one who has faithfully and perfectly provided. But oftentimes we don't. Many times we don't. We might have a boss that is unruly or challenging and rather than go to the Lord, we take matters into our own hands. As a parent, You know, we're walking down that hallway to deal with another blowout, and our anger is preventing us from making any appeal to the Lord. Or it could be strife between 
friends and family, and even though we find ourselves in great need, I wonder how often do we remember what the Lord is capable of doing in those very moments? Do we understand his power? And where we find ourselves in the Gospel of Mark, the disciples are are not in a great place. They too have found themselves in great need. Their faith is weak, their, their heart is hard, and so they've resorted to fear and doubt, and they're constantly forgetting who the Lord is and the power that he has to meet their need. And if he was on one occasion in chapter four, that after Jesus calmed the sea, that they said to one another, who is this? That even the winds and the sea obey him. Who is this? They, they didn't get it, they didn't understand. They're not getting it because they're in a hurting place, spiritually speaking. And unlike a child in pain running to his mother, they're not always instinctively going to the Lord, believing who he is and finding him to be the provider for all their needs. And I wonder if we resonate with that. Because Jesus wants us to be changed into one image of glory to another. And he wants to remind them of three things from this passage when they're in time of need. And firstly, he is their compassionate provider. Mark chapter 8, and I'll be reading the first three verses. In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way, and some of them have come from far away. The gospel writers, they use this word compassion quite often to describe Jesus, but notice this is the only time where it's ever used of Jesus referring to himself as being compassionate. And this shouldn't be overlooked. His intention is to make himself known to disciples in order for them to see who the fullness of God is. He sees the needs of the people, doesn't want them to faint on the way, and as this word compassion suggests, he's deeply moved in his spirit to to relieve them of their burden. I remember the story of the Good Samaritan, and I'm sure you remember that, of how he sees the man who had been beaten on the side of the road, and, and Luke uses that same word where it says that he had compassion on him, and what does he do? He bounds up his wounds and he takes care of him. Or the, the father in the story of the, the prodigal son as he returns home and it says that he felt compassion towards him and he, and he went on his neck and began kissing him. It's, it's a sign of affection. So Jesus turns, turns to his disciples and he says, I feel compassion towards these people. They've been with me for three days and have nothing to eat. I want to feed them. And in Matthew's account of the story, the language is even stronger when he says, I am unwilling to send them away hungry. It's not going to happen. He cares for their physical well-being and wants to relieve them of their burden. And as he is revealing his heart of compassion to the disciples, I wonder if you see it as well in your own life. Are you recognizing in very practical ways how Christ is showing compassion to you? In Matthew chapter 9, it says that when Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. But when you look around this room, he hasn't left us alone. 
He's provided us a community of other believers to help and exhort and to comfort and correct. So what you actually see right here among us is a visible sign of of the compassion of Christ. And I wonder if you think of all the people in your lives that provides care and concern and compassion. Remember that they are a living testimony to the compassion of Christ as he cares for your needs. So that when you come here on a Tuesday night and you see that the youth are taken care of in a multitude of ways, that is Christ showing compassion to you. You're involved in a small group, and I like how one leader recently put it. He said that this is a place where people are genuinely cared for in terms of just the overall health of an individual. Lives are being changed. Needs are being met. This is the compassion of Christ. So the question is, though, where do you find yourself needing to grow in the area of compassion? Last week, we saw just a short but precious video of those who started the the buddy ministry in the church, a sign of compassion. People who want to come alongside other families who are in need, and, and they make provision. Maybe this is an area where you want to get involved, that you can get involved. But let me also just say that this doesn't have to take shape in in terms of a formal ministry. This can be out in the hallway after the service when someone comes up to you and they say, man, I've had a rough week. And you can turn to them and say, well, I hope the next week is better. And you walk away. Or like Christ, you can be that compassionate friend and you meet their need and you say, let me encourage you. Let's go out together. Let me help relieve your burden. I remember it was about six years ago when we had our third child. And to be precise, it was 371 days after we had our second child. <laughs> and we like to remind ourselves of that every so often. And, um, and shortly after Anna gave birth, I, I came with the older two to church. And one of the ladies came up to me and she just asked how we were doing. And I just said, you know, it's been a pretty exhausting week. It was really tiring, and, and she says, well, I'll give her a call. I was like, okay, great. Within a couple of days, she was over at our house, and in very practical ways, just relieving a burden. This is, this is the compassion of Christ being put on display in someone's life that compels them to show compassion to other people. We ought to be a burden-bearing community. And praise God, this happens in numerous ways. And so many people just were unaware of it, but the Lord is aware of it. He understands, he knows, he sees. But I also think that as Jesus puts his compassion on display to the disciples here, he wants them to eventually see that there is a need that no one else can make provision for, and that is the burden of what? The burden of sin. Because among many things, you know what compelled him to relieve us of that burden? It was his compassion. It was his compassion. I'm sure you remember what Jonah said near the end of his book. He was a prophet of God who didn't want to see a pagan nation come to know the Lord and was angry because they turned away from their idols. And he says to God, I knew it. I knew that you were a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness, and get this, relenting from disaster. I knew it. 
It was your compassion that withheld from us what we actually deserve. It's one of the, reasons, one of the many reasons why God chose to save us. It's because of his compassion. And Jesus is unfolding his character here in such an amazing way to the disciples and he wants us to see it. Do you see his compassion? But as he continues to deal with his disciples, he not only wants them to see his compassion but to remember that he's also their patient provider in time of need. Look at verse four. And his disciples answered, how can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And I'm just gonna stop here for a moment. This was obviously a large crowd. Verse nine mentions that there were 4,000, but Matthew's account says that there were 4,000 plus women and children, so I read numbers of anywhere from 8,000 up to 12 or even 15,000 people. Massive crowd. So this seems like a legitimate question. How are we gonna feed all these people? Unless, of course, you've been spending just a little bit of time with the disciples because then you would have to conclude that this is an absurd question to ask. You don't ask this question. Maybe you're asking why, and I want you to flip one or two pages back in your Bible to chapter six. Once again, there's a large crowd of people, and in verse 34, it says that Jesus feels compassion upon the crowd because they were like, they were lost like sheep without a shepherd. And the disciples feel the complete opposite toward them because it says in verse 34, sorry, verse 36, send them home so they can buy themselves something to eat. Jesus says, you give them something to eat. We're not sending them home. You give them something. And as you know, Jesus proceeds to take five loaves and two fish and multiplies it to feed 5,000 men plus women and children, which could have been upwards to about 20,000 people. You just witnessed this incredible miracle of Jesus feeding thousands of people, and a short time later, you ask this question, how are we going to find enough bread to feed all these people? You shouldn't be asking this. But that's not all. I want you to see something in verse 31 of chapter 6. Jesus says to the disciples, come away by yourself. Where? To a desolate place. It's a remote place, something like the wilderness where you didn't have access to the market. It's a secluded place. Look at verse 32. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place. They, They knew where they were going. In fact, they even admitted to it. In verse 35, because it says, when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place. They knew where this miracle happened. Now go back to chapter 8, and we'll read verse 4 again. How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? You think they would have remembered what happened. Being around a similar size group of people with the same dilemma in another remote area and in the presence of the same one who fed thousands of people. And I think the language is not only referring back to chapter 6, but to God's faithful provision throughout generations going all the way back to other desolate places to the wilderness. 
Moses said this to the people of Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 8. It's going to be up on the screen here. It says, lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them, then your heart will be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, who fed you in the wilderness with men. Do you not remember? Like, why don't you get it? You know, and as a parent, sometimes you feel that frustration. Like, I've told you the same thing six times in the last three minutes. How is it that you do not get it? Like, go brush your teeth. One of the best lines I heard was, well, well, maybe by the time I walk up the stairs, I'm going to forget again. I'm like, don't forget. (laughs) And you might expect Jesus just to be done with them. Like, I'm sending these guys home. I'm going to start fresh with another 12. Like, I'm not working with these guys anymore, but he doesn't. And in his gentleness and mercy, he patiently asks them, how many loaves do you have? Even that question should have triggered something in their brains because it was phrased the exact same way as in chapter 6. How many loaves do you have? He's trying to jog their memory back to his faithful provision in the past. And you know what we're seeing about our Lord? Just how patient he is with them. That in their foolishness, in their forgetfulness, and just lack of understanding, he says, how many loaves do you have? In other words, I'm going to do this again with you. I'm going to do this again. This is not a time for a verbal rebuke. There will come a time for that, but I'm going to patiently walk you through this again. And I know that we live in a day where there's never more a need for discipline and rebuke and correction. But how often have you looked at someone with the gentleness and compassion of Christ and in their forgetfulness, you tell them, we're going to do this again. You don't even have to say it to them. You just think to yourself, I'm going to walk you through this again. And in the midst of their forgetfulness, you're reminding them and yourself of how patient Christ has been with you. Because when I read the story of disciples, who do you think I think of? I think of myself. I think of myself. Needing to learn that same lesson over and over and over because the Lord has demonstrated his patience over and over and over. And even after we've questioned him, we become angry and we've doubted him. He's allowed us to be in that same place simply because we simply didn't learn the first time or the second or the third time, which is a demonstration of his, of his patience as he continues to bear with our forgetfulness and foolishness. I wonder how many times you've been in that desolate place, that same place, and you remember how many times the Lord has had to bear with you. And like the disciples, you become distracted by what's around you. There's too many people. There's not enough food. There's no place to get any. They didn't have any answers, but they didn't realize that their answer was standing right in front of their blind eyes. Call on him. Beg him to do what he's promised to do and who he says, and what he says he can do. 
He's the only one who can do it. That should have been their response, and that should be ours. And I just want to remind you to do what you've heard so many times from here, but we often brush it aside or, or we forget like the disciples. But sometimes we're in a dilemma and we're kind of rattling our, bla- our, our, our brain with what we should do and, and someone just turns over and, to us and says, well, why don't you just pray? And you're like, oh yeah. L- like you've never heard it before, but you've heard it a million times. And I'm just gonna remind us of the, of the same thing that we keep hearing week after week after week. We heard it last week. Go to the Lord in prayer and beg him to provide for your needs, knowing that your greatest need is to be made like him. Refresh your heart by appealing to the one who knows what to do and remind yourself of his compassion and patience with you and pray specifically for your heart, for your own heart, that you align it with his. We need to remember in our time of need that Jesus is our compassionate provider, our patient provider, and thirdly, our powerful provider. Look with me at verse 6. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground. And he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples and set to set before the people. And they set them before the crowd, and they had a few small fish. And having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people. And he sent them away. And immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. One of the reasons why I was drawn to this passage is because I think the feeding of the 4,000 is one of the more neglected miracles. In fact, many people have even forgotten that this ever happened because I feel like it's overshadowed by the feeding of the 5,000. I mean, if you're going to choose to put one of these in a children's Bible storybook, let's be honest, it's going to be the one with the little boy in it. You're rarely going to find this one in there. And skeptics have even suggested that the miracle here is actually no different than the one that's recorded in Mark chapter 6, the feeding of the five. And one of the reasons they say that is because they think there's no way that Jesus can perform virtually the same miracle within such a short period of time and the disciples don't get it. They're like, there's no way these are two different events. But that's essentially the point. They don't have enough faith to believe And we'll soon notice that even after this miracle, they still don't get it. But with all these similarities, there are just as many differences between these miracles. The one in in Mark chapter 8 is actually happening in Gentile territory rather than in a Jewish region. And as we noted already, it's a slightly smaller crowd. We're dealing with seven loaves instead of five. And the seven baskets left over were fewer than the twelve. But... Even the type of basket is different. In the feeding of the 5,000, there were small hand baskets that were filled up. Meanwhile, the word for basket here was used of large, oversized baskets, like big enough for a person to fit in. It was actually used in in the book of Acts of someone being lowered in one of these. These are massive baskets 
So even the leftovers in this one is significantly more than in the feeding of the 5,000. And commentators have elaborated on the meaning of these numbers, and I think there's a lot of merit to them, and we might get to one, but I just need to state the obvious conclusion up front here. That this is undeniable, undeniably a powerful working of the Lord, and no one can deny it. What seems impossible, he makes possible. And nothing is outside the boundary of his power. He causes the lame to walk. He raises the dead. And he feeds thousands of people out of nothing. And when we look back to that foolish question that disciples asked in verse 4, the response should have been, Lord, you're able. Because we've seen you do this in the past. And we are here just to serve you. You have the power to provide food and anything else that we need. You have done so in the past, and you are compassionate to do so. Paul Tripp had this to say when commenting on God's, on the relationship between God's compassion and power, and I find it really helpful. He says, divine power plus divine compassion equals everything you need. If God were only holy and only powerful and only sovereign and had no compassion, we would be damned. No one would ever run to him. No one would ever find hope in him. But his compassion means that sovereignty is exercised for your good. That power is released for your provision. That holiness is what leads him to send his son so his holiness does not have to be compromised. So through the holy life of Christ, justification and forgiveness and righteousness is given. And on the cross, holiness and power and sovereignty and compassion meet together in salvation for his elect. Divine power plus divine compassion equals everything you need. Because if we're honest, when we fall into sin, just like the disciples, we doubt one of these. Either his compassion or his power or maybe even both. You get angry at someone believing that's the only way to resolve a conflict rather than trusting the Lord that he has the power to transform your life and theirs. You get anxious about the future because you doubt in the compassion and care of God to make provision. We stop praying for the lost because we fail to remember that the one who has the power to save is stronger than any adversity to cause someone rejecting the gospel. So what's the remedy for all this? How, how do we get to a point in our life where we have such confident belief in the power and compassion of God to provide for all of our needs? Well, I want us to consider this. And even as we consider that quote by Paul Tripp, that the greatest demonstration of power and compassion was met where? It was met at the cross. When Christ, being fully God, came in the likeness of human flesh, suffered and died on our behalf so that we can have eternal life. God crushed his son in order to make provision for our greatest need. Would he then not make sufficient provision for the lesser needs of this life? Paul put it this way in Romans 8. He says, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? It's a rhetorical question. Of course he will. 
So in times of need, when you forget his power, remember the cross. When you forget his compassion, remember the cross. It's a continual reflection and remembrance of the cross that will center our mind to believe that he will provide for all of our needs because he's already taken care of our greatest need in this life. And Jesus was trying to get his disciples to understand him by these signs, but they couldn't grasp, grasp this. Why, why didn't they get it? And we'll answer that shortly, but Jesus first has this exchange with the Pharisees beginning in verse 11 because they wanted him to perform a sign. Unbelievable. And the the irony is that if you read the first seven chapters of the Gospel of Mark, it's filled with miracles and wonders and signs. It was all around them. Jesus even has one exchange with them in chapter three when when it was a Sabbath and and they wanted to watch and see if Jesus was gonna heal the man with the withered hand so that they can accuse him. Jesus was grieved and angered over their hardness of heart. They're not, they're not looking to believe, as verse 11 says. That they're looking to trap him. And so Jesus is not giving them anything more than what they've already seen and heard. And I think the dialogue with the Pharisees is included here because Jesus is exposing a hardness of heart in the disciples that can eventually lead to the type of hardness that is seen among these religious leaders. Which is why Jesus says in verse 15, watch out. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Be on guard. Be on guard for their teachings and don't take part in their evil and wickedness because their hardness of heart will lead to destruction. And maybe you're here to that here today and you need to hear that where your heart is hard you've opposed God you've you've opposed others even speaking the truth of God's word into your life and God is calling you to repent and to believe don't spur his compassion and patience with you as he's been as he's been bearing with your refusal to come to him repent don't think lightly of his mercy Jesus gives the disciples this warning, but they're clueless. Because in verse 16, they begin discussing with each other that they have no what? They have no bread. Verse 14 says that they had forgotten to bring any. They only had one loaf, and they're wondering again what they're going to do. I mean, can you imagine that? They've, They've been basically drowning in bread for the last number of months, because Jesus has been providing and supplying bread out of nothing, and now they're at it again. I mean, if there was one thing you imagine that didn't have to worry about, it would be bread. Like, worry about something else. Just assume that Jesus has the bread taken care of. But they couldn't understand, and why didn't they get it? Why did this keep happening? And beginning in verse 17, Jesus is now gonna tell us why. And please don't miss this. Verse 17. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? 
When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, 12. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? What were they supposed to understand? What were they supposed to remember? As it says in verse 18, they were to remember that Jesus is their compassionate and patient and powerful provider for all their needs, to believe in him, but they didn't understand. Why? And verse 18 helps us because Jesus mentions having eyes and ears, but not being able to see or hear. And he says that because bracketing, bookending this entire section of scripture is a miracle right after this of Jesus opening the eyes of a blind man and at the end of chapter seven of Jesus opening the ears of a deaf man. And both of these are unique to the Gospel of Mark and are positioned right here because they act as a metaphor to what must take place in the lives of the disciples, but it hasn't happened yet. You have eyes, but you don't see. You have ears, but you don't hear. You have scales on your eyes. You're hard of hearing. But the good news is I can open them. I can open them. I have the power to not only multiply food to feed thousands of people and to meet all your earthly needs, but I have the power to open your spiritually blind eyes and deaf ears. But you have to come to me. You gotta come to me. You can't do this on your own. You have to see me as a source of power. That's what he's teaching the disciples. The language in the miracles of the blind and deaf are so similar, I mean, you can read this on your own, as it points to this undeniable truth that Jesus is the one who did it. Last verse of chapter seven says, he has done all things well, he even makes the deaf hear and mute speak. It was undeniable, he possesses the power. And we're certainly not gonna go through them, but I wanna bring out one thought as it's connected to our text. In both miracles, there were people who brought these men to Jesus. And it says there, they begged him. They begged him to heal them. And I know that we have friends and we have coworkers in our lives who need spiritual healing. And parents, we we have children in our own homes and outside of our homes who need to be saved. And we need to call them to faith and to repentance. But along with that, I think what Jesus is teaching us here, that if their eyes will be open and their ears will be open, we need to beg Jesus to do it. We need to beg him to plead on their behalf that they come to know him. So let me ask, how often are you begging the Lord to save those people in your lives? Fathers and I'm going I'm to put myself in there. How often are you rallying your wife and saying, we need to beg our children. We need to beg Jesus to save our children. We need to beg the Lord. He has the power. He's the one who's compassionate. He's the one who's patient. And he's the one who's able to deliver them. We need to beg him. 
We must go to him in humble dependence, believing that he and he alone has the power to open spiritually blind eyes and deaf ears. That's what he's teaching the disciples. You're blind and you're deaf, but I and I alone have the power to meet your biggest need of causing you to spiritually see and hear. And I think those seven baskets is a subtle yet obvious reminder to him being the perfect provider who satisfies. You will find everything you need in me. At the end of the Gospel of John, after his resurrection, Jesus was standing on the shore while the disciples went out fishing, and it says that night that they caught nothing, not a single fish. And Jesus said to them, cast your net on the right side of the fish, of of the boat. And it says that when they did that, there was an abundance of fish. And that's when they recognized that it was the Lord, and they immediately swam to meet him on the shore. But when they arrived on dry land, it says that Jesus had prepared a charcoal fire. And do you remember what was on there? Some fish and some loaves. And I think that may have been a reminder to them that as I have faithfully and powerfully and patiently provided for you in the past, I will continue to do that. You need to rely on me to do it. I am the source of power. You can't forget that. You need to remember. You need to remember that I have the power.